and welcome to the very first episode of the Social Review podcast, uh, our tremendously exciting new uh, venture over at the Social Review. Uh, today, joining me, Jasper, we have uh, Joe or Steamed Hams on Twitter, uh, William, uh, William and Air on Twitter, and uh, Eugenie at Means TD on Twitter. Our mission of the Social Review is to discuss and debate the future of socialism, and today we are doing that through the prism of the European election results, which were a thing and have happened. Um, what do we think of the European election results? Um, they weren't particularly good, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Uh, um, Joe, what do you think these results mean for Labour? Um, both long-term, like existentially, but also in the short-term in terms of strategy and tactics. I think the direction of travel clearly looks like we're heading towards adopting a less ambiguous pro-second referendum position. Um, I'm quite, I've been from the start quite sort of sceptical and cautious of the actual policy, but I think looking at the results last night, I don't see how um, the leadership are going to avoid it. And maybe electorally it is the correct position now. We need to be making an argument for remain and reform but with an emphasis on reform we, I, would, I would like to see is actually put forward um exactly what reforms the european union we're going to be campaigning for if we win the referendum i mean if we win the referendum is my big fit that if is the fear i'm i'm not convinced we're in a position to but but i would like yeah i guess that's where i am on that I, i'm I think I just spent last night screaming into the abyss, to be honest, when I saw the results coming through, because it was... Um, yeah, big mood. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, I think the entirety of the Labour movement was doing the exact same thing. <laughs> I find it endearing that you guys still have enough hope in anything that, you know, you can feel the existential angst. I'm, like, over the Rubicon at this point. Um, <laughs> I have always been so agnostic about uh, a second referendum, because... To me, it just seemed like a, you know, a returning back to the worst parts of the campaigning of 2016, entering ourselves into a like a potential race where we could see no deal put on the table, um, which feels increasingly likely looking at the way the Tory leadership um, kind of race has been moving as well. And, you know, to see an eventuality of potentially even leave or no deal winning and then you know, where, where do we go from there? It's just like a stupendous act of self-harm, I guess. But again, you look at the results from last night and you you see that um, from the weekend in general, and, and it's, it's difficult to see, you know, in a country that's so divided and, you know, people who are so, it seems to be like the, the kind of gulf between the leavers and the, and the remainers has now become so stark. Um, it's difficult to see where we're going apart from towards a second referendum, as uh, deeply unhappy as that may make me. But yeah. Do we think that there's any possibility that the second referendum will actually end up being uh, a process of national healing? Um, do we think that it's actually could be the one thing we do need? Or is it pretty unequivocally that's not going to happen? It's going to be a bad idea. It's a bad idea. The, the core people who've been pushing for this over the last three years have all of a sudden been like, hey, we're willing to even let you put no deal on this situation, which is the equivalent of going to the supermarket. Your child is like screaming for sweets and you're like, hey, maybe we should have vegetables. And it's like, then you get to the tills and it's like, right, fine. If you at least give vegetables a chance, I'll buy you a packet of cigarettes. That's what we'll do. That's the situation we're in now with the Liberal Democrats <laughs> saying that we'll consider no deal. It's complete nonsense. 
I would love to hear genuinely from uh, some of the more like um, prominent people's vote campaign people exactly what happens if we do lose that referendum. Um, mm. There seems to be a, an assumption we get the referendum and we, we win it and then we're fine. What what what's the strategy if we lose it? What happens then? And I I think it's it's on a knife edge. I don't see that we're obviously going to win it. If anything, I think Leave are probably going to win it. So so what happens if they do? I think the approach where they see Remain as this uh, this is definitely going to happen is because they've essentially decided they want to remain, which is a completely legitimate view. And then they've worked backwards to go like, all right, how do we get there? So in their minds, that logic has already followed through. They've already decided with Remain's going to win. There is no, like, this referendum is a means to an end. They've completely disrespected the mechanism. It's just a way to remain, which is exactly the wrong way to think about this. Let, let's, let's say Remain wins. There, there doesn't appear to be a clear strategy for that either, because the idea that everything will just be hunky-dory, we'll all go around the campfire and sing Kumbaya if, if Remain win and all the leaders will just forget about it, it seems to me a fallacy. Um, you're going to end up with maybe not a majority by this point, but a significant proportion of the country being really angry that they haven't got what they voted for. Um, and they're going to see this as some kind of establishment stitch-up. You know, long-term, that's going to have a really corrosive impact on politics. Yeah, so I'd agree 100%. I think the, the kind of long-term planning of the... Uh, of the, the people's vote, I, I would personally, I prefer to call them the, the second referendum, because I think even utilising the kind of the language of the people's vote is to kind of buy into their political project. That's a personal pet peeve of mine. But anyway, um, sorry, everyone. <laughs> but I, I, I do, I, I completely agree, you know, there, there is no planning. And you say, even if, even if they do win, you know, the kind of the recriminations, the narrative of, again, betrayal and stitch up, um, I do find it incredibly worrying and, you know, as much as I would like to see us, you know, remain in the European Union and for everything to, you know, to continue on as it has been, we can't deny that, you know, what's happened in the last three years has happened. And I certainly don't see, you know, in the way that it basically feels like we're kind of almost launching ourselves into a culture war to say that, um, you know, a second referendum, which would basically be like, I don't know. I was trying to quickly think of a first world war analogy there and couldn't quite get there quick enough. But, you know, it, uh, I don't know, some kind of battle of the Somme, basically. You know, it's just mass machine gunning on all sides and we kind of wake up the next day and um, the bodies are in the battlefield and, and what we've gained, half an inch. Um, yeah, I, I just uh, I I would be very, very interested to speak to uh, uh, someone who felt very strongly about the people's vote and really pushed them on questions like this, because it doesn't really feel like that's happened. I, I I can't think of anyone who's ever had to address this beyond the kind of, you know, the narrative of should we have a second vote or should we instead to go, okay, but what does it all mean? Like, what are the repercussions of this? So is what we're saying, we think Labour's policy, it's inevitably going to move towards a second referendum, but we also think it's going to be a disaster. I think it depends a lot on how it's framed. So my assumption was always that the second referendum would act as a kind of ratification, like the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so I was very surprised when most other people seemed to think it as, no, it would just be Remain versus Leave again. Um, I think if it were done how Labour seemed to want it to be done as a kind of ratification referendum, like we get a deal and then we go to the people like, OK, do you want this or not? Um, and if you don't, then we remain. Um, I think that's very different to 
the kind of more establishment stitchy uppy remain versus leave uh remain versus no deal kind of thing um which does seem much more like a rerun of the 2016 referendum so maybe labor's plan of a second referendum would be better than other models of the second referendum um what do you guys think do you think it makes any difference at all how it's framed i think it yeah absolutely having a a clear plan is definitely going to make it more it, it will legitimize it i think one of the things that something keir starmer said this morning actually and i found it really interesting that he said this because he basically just reiterated that policy but he said that there needs to be a credible leave option mm. he used those specific words and it's very clear from the labor front bench's position and from the whip's position may's deal is not a credible leave option so for all the noise that's been going on today of oh corbyn look every every front bencher is coming out as a pro remain pro people's vote thing they're not the policy hasn't changed and i don't think it will change it doesn't really need to i think the one thing we need to do more than anything is that we've spent the last few years with this position of ambiguity and that's paid off because we basically said you know we have no views but we want the customs union and it just so happened that was the most uh, pedestrian wedge we could put into the tory party that's done its thing now like we've broken them it's not doing anything for us anymore you, with all due respect to keir starmer and the shadow department of the european union a customs union is a terrible idea on its own so mm. we need to start moving toward making a credible leave case instead of just going all right now we need a referendum we broke brexit now we need to change it like that's not going to work in your mind, Will, and also opening up to everybody else, what is that credible leave option if it isn't a customs union? Well, I mean, I, it's no it's no secret that I back Lefter. I am a big Lefter fan. I think the European free trade area, uh, if especially spoken as using those exact words, is a really easy way to get people to be like, okay, it's a safe leave. It is an economic relationship with the European Union. It uh, it preserves freedom of movement, but let's be real about this. No one is voting for Corbyn, who wanted remain, uh, sorry, who wanted leave, uh, believes that he's going to shut the borders. We gain nothing from uh, being a bit uwer on freedom of movement because they Diane Abbott's our Home Secretary. No one believes for a second that we're actually going to do anything but maintain at least the status quo as freedom of movement. So there is really no downside for us of going to the EFTA argument. And it has intellectual basis. You can you can tell people, this is what they promised you. This is a video of Nigel Farage saying we should be more like Norway. This is a video of Daniel Hanan saying that, you know, no one's thinking of leaving the single market. It's about breaking down those barriers and making it about principles and aims again. No one can question that our aim is probably not going to be as strict an immigration policy as the Tories, but we can absolutely make the economic case for being in the European free trade area. We can make the uh, cultural case on immigration and the political case for scrapping two-thirds of EU laws like it's all there and it's really easy to do like the legwork has been done by uh, Nick it is Nick Bowles yeah Nick Bowles and Lucy Powell they've done so much work and big Stephen Kinnock the, uh, beardy the bearded beast he is now, um, <laughs> he's done so much hard work it'd be such a shame if we just went yeah that looks great what about a customs union? And again, it doesn't solve anything. So that's after, 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 every day. I think it all sounds very appealing. And as you say, I think a lot of the exercise in moving forward is going to be about selling it on 
um, selling it on a terms that will appeal to a public who I think we can say the, the kind of running conventional wisdom is people just want something to be done. They, there's people are sick of the prevarication. They're sick of the, uh, the sick of the kind of infighting. So yeah, if you can, if you can build off, you know, popular support for, I mean, I don't have any polling behind this, but off, you know, on hand for me here, but, uh, you know, from my personal experience as well, if we can build on some kind of popular consensus towards something like after, which, as you say, you know, has the appealing, you know, in the, in the, to kind of channel my most uh, new labory instincts, you know, it's got free trade in it. So, you know, it's something that's going to appeal to maybe people who are more thinking about questions of sovereignty and independence, uh, rather than just, um, uh, you know, rather than, you know, increasingly, if we get start getting bogged down in ideas of customs union and things like that, you know, the potential worry is obviously that people would just, it, it, it could be sold as just being a fundamental betrayal, uh, I put air quotes around that, of Brexit and what Brexit was meant to symbolise. And, you know, I don't think we should run politics based on the kind of ideas of what forces potentially could or could not be unleashed. But I think it's something to bear in mind, you're looking at the success of the Brexit party over the weekend. Um, mm. and you know, we should all be, I think we, we were very lucky that, you know, Tommy Robinson lost his deposit, sorry, Stephen Yaxley Lennon lost his deposit. Um, and, I see that uh, a great moment from last night. <laughs> truly, yeah. truly heartwarming. This has impl implications across of Europe. The S and D aren't that far behind the European People's Party in Parliament. It's what, mm. like 20 seats? And with how everyone's having these poor reactions to Spitzen candidate right now, and how the groupings are turning out to be a lot more volatile than we thought, with the, I think it's the chairman of the Socialists and Democrats, the Party of European Socialists, I think he said he wants to expand what we actually define as our own parliamentary grouping. I am afraid of the thing that I said would happen has happened, and a lot of people protesting Brexit has maybe cost us some of the vital reform that we actually need. Yeah, and no, I think, you know, I, I'm glad we're talking about Europe more generally, because as you say, you know, um, we're not, we're not alone in, uh, we're not alone in the European Parliament, and there's quite a lot of significance in the, in the fluctuations in the groupings. And, um, you know, the, the success of both the kind of, uh, the kind of green, I think broadly, we just think of them as a kind of green coalition across Europe, but also um, that coming with, you know, success for the kind of ultra nationalist parties although you know with the with the with the idea that okay they they succeeded in um poland hungary and italy um obviously we can't just see that on its own um they you know le pen came first but her vote was down uh she actually did better in 2014 than she did in um uh than she did over the weekend and certainly, you know, the retraction we're seeing is in the centre-right and the centre-left blocks rather than um, necessarily kind of in the, uh, on the kind of polar, on the, sorry, on the further left. And, you know, the rise of European nationalism, I think it should concern us all, but, you know, not to get, uh, you know, the, the narrative of the kind of wave, I think, uh, well, we can't even say it's waxing or waning, you know, Alberto Nardelli said that, uh, on Twitter said that, um the most the significant thing to take out of you know the european trend is fragmentation and polarization which we can see in the uk and across europe itself is is it still possible that the next president of the um european commission so jean-claude Juncker's successor um will end up from the socialist grouping um by some kind of coalition 
um, with the Greens. Is that a thing that could happen? So the ALDE prefer the kind of situation you're talking about, which is where you have a coalition to vote it through because you do end up these stupid situations where a minority plurality uh, crowns the king. They don't like it. But as far as I'm aware, the desire for spitzing candidate to stop isn't it's not there and it's not come in time whichever party uh in the european groupings gathers the most meps they their representative is chosen by the parliament to be the commission president so the epp currently have the most meps in the grouping which means i think it's mark weber or weber i don't know which one it is he is the uh, president to be he's the president elect basically this is what this now this period we're currently in is so valuable for because this is where we actually decide this is where the groupings start they have these the parties don't have groupings before parliament sits i think they have to then choose them when they when they actually get sent off to parliament now the socialist democratic group might choose to come to an agreement with the greens where they become the socialists and democrats and greens this is a position that I would like them all to take. There is a long-standing feud between the left grouping, which is GUE. I don't know what that stands for. Uh, the GUE and the ALDE. The ALDE is the Liberal Democrats grouping. They have a huge feud, so they will never work together. Don't ever expect that to come off. Because I've seen some people being like, what if you could have a Remain alliance, but in the European Parliament? And it's like, yeah, you've completely failed to grasp that not everything is Britain. Not everything is based around Brexit, and that's one that is particularly not Brexity. The left in the European Parliament are left. They do not work with the Liberals. It just doesn't happen. Like, the European Parliament is basically Twitter. That's how it works. Uh, just a word from Laura Parker, who ran the campaign that Labour should have ran. Uh, I think um, she was one of the real bright spr- sparks of Labour's campaign in this time, and I... And uh, Laura Parker for Vauxhall, really. <laughs> yeah, 100%. It's such a disappointment that she didn't get a seat. Such a disappointment. And like you said, it is the exact campaign that Labour should have run. It was positive. It was positively, positively European, if not positively European Union. It backed all of our principles. It actually spoke about real reformation, uh, not just on the European level, but on the British level. Instead of being like, because we essentially did a reformation argument, but the reformation was there'll be 10,000 more cops, which wasn't logically congruent and also doesn't really tie into, like it didn't tie into anything that we we're trying to do. <laughs> Whoever is coordinating our election strategy, get them out, get them fired. They're not doing a good job anymore. <laughs> I've, I might have become one of those people that's like, get Seamus Milne out of the job. <laughs> I mean, isn't that our editorial line? <laughs> We don't take editorial lines. <laughs> I, I apologize. You couldn't obviously through the medium of podcast you couldn't see, but I wiggled my eyebrows in a very provocative fashion and saying that. But all views are my own on who should be hired or fired from the the uh, lotto. That's the other point I was going to make. Actually, um, in terms of we this podcast has been so down on a second referendum, and I really don't. And I that's sort of my view, but I really don't know how representative that is of the rest of the. Um, social review like editorial team and i feel like we've managed to pick the four uh, i'm saying nothing <laughs> i'm impartial three guests then. three yeah. guests and a host <laughs> I, I don't think we can take nothing from your election results but 
in a general election, the biggest one of the biggest things that we have in our favour is we're still the lever that you vote that you pull if you want to remove the Tories from office. Yeah. And that's not true in European elections. Um so I mean, it's gonna be a different situation in a general election and we we need to be careful in not taking um too much from these results. Do, do any of you get a sense that that is starting to break away, uh, both from the perspective of these results um, and also the kind of long term uh, trend for the past couple of years of people deciding, I don't want things to be like the way they always have been. So I'm going to vote against that. Um, and maybe this and the local election results um, are going to show that 2017 was an outlier and that what people actually want is for that lever to not be there anymore, to be like, actually, we're just going to vote for who we want. Um, is it is it still a guarantee that Labour will be the party um, who you vote for if you want to get the Tories out of office, or is that going to be supplanted by some kind of green Lib Dem coalition or greens or, or whatever? I, I would be very interested, uh, you know, um, to see, you know, as you were saying, the EU elections are so different to general elections and how far we can ever kind of broadly see uh, maybe the EU as a warm up to the other. I was just looking uh, while you were speaking at the uh, the results in Bolsover, you know, Dennis Skinner's seat, um, Brexit party 41%, Lib Dem 16%, Conservative 12%, Green 10%, Labour 10%, UKIP 4%. I mean, obviously, um, obviously it's not a... Um, it's not a result which I think you would ever see directly replicated in the general election and certainly the kind of bizarreness of having an evening where about it felt like about half of the results we saw when uh, either Brexit Party 1, Lib Dems 2 or Lib Dems 1, Brexit Party 2, which you know, if you ever wanted a, an emblem of how disjointed everything feels at the moment, that, that would be it. But, um, you know, the... Uh, the the kind of cons the concern here about you know Nigel Farage saying a few hours ago that he wants to run six hundred and fifty candidates in the next general election would be you know can this success be replicated in a first past the post system you know under different pressures uh, with a lot much longer much more kind of visible campaigning um, and certainly something I saw raised online which interests me today was you know how much do the Brexit Party actually have the the kind of uh, the mechanisms required, you know, the kind of get out the vote schemes and the kind of the, the mailing lists and everything like that versus how much are they able just to coast off the name, the idea that, well, you know, it's the name and it's Nigel Farage. So, um, yeah, no, no conclusive response there from me, but just uh, I think some important factors to take into account. And certainly I would hope we never we never got too, you know, thinking about Labour, I'd hope we never got too um too drawn into thinking about the remain coalition when obviously the leave coalition is still a hugely significant part of uh you know what will what will structure you know labor's potential parliamentary result at the next general election whether that's in six months or two years and in addition to that the brexit party is not a long-term solution if it was it would not be called the brexit party there is going to come a point where Brexit is not the be all and end all of British politics, and they're going to need another name. For example, um, they're they're going to need to draw up a manifesto at some point, and inevitably, some of the people who voted for the Brexit Party, the Europeans, are going to look at some things in the manifesto and be like, "Oh, actually, I don't want that." You know, we don't know how many people were like this, but f from what like 
and, and Whitaker was saying in an interview, I've seen it anecdotally on, on social media and that kind of thing, that people who voted Remain in 2016 but thought, like, oh, well, leave does need to happen. I respect democracy, so I'm voting for the Brexit party, even if I don't agree with them. Um, we don't know enough about the coalition of voters who voted for the Brexit party yet to know whether it's going to be replicated in a general election, I think. I have to say, I am more fearful of the hell world continuing. I am more fearful <laughs> that we will not be able to move the discourse away from Brexit, because if we can't do that, the natural party of change, whilst Brexit isn't completed, is the Brexit party. I agree. We need to be the party of change. We have to get the discussion off of Brexit, if that means solving it, if that means doing it, if that means if you can make the argument well enough that that means putting it to a referendum, fine, but it has to be a concise, well-argued point. It can't just be a band-aid on this. Joining us today as our first ever guest on the Social Review podcast is uh, Tessa, or at Tess Milsey on Twitter. Um, someone who's worked very closely within the campaigns for a second referendum um, within Labour and outside of it. Um, Tessa, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. And jo <laughs> joining us as well is Joe from earlier. Hello again, Joe. How am I? Not William and, uh, William and Eugenie. Um, no, they've sorry, gone. They've sorry. Gone sorry guys um <laughs> what are your what are your thoughts on on labor moving to a second referendum position now um how likely slash probable do you think it is that they're going to move to a full throttle um people's vote second referendum position after the european election results i think it's great to see some movement especially in the shadow cabinet um it's great to see the front bench kind of leading on this um my only concern at this point is it needs to extend beyond just statements um, in interviews. Um, we have to see some actual movement towards actually campaigning for a second referendum because it's all very well saying we like one, we're going to call for one, we're going to have one. Um, but Labour actually needs to be leading on this. They need to be campaigning. My, my biggest worry at this point is that... Um, I guess strategically, Labour may still end up as a pro-Brexit party, or stay rather as a pro-Brexit party, but um, McDonnell and Corbyn and other people um, kind of at the top of the party will see, might see a second referendum as their sort of key to keeping the Remain support while still being a pro-Brexit party. And I think that's my my main concern at the moment if for example in you know the vision that they've set out which is essentially a general election where Labour win and then offer a referendum on the Brexit deal how does Labour campaign in that deal because would they effectively campaign for their own deal which would make sense making them a pro-Brexit party um, or do they minimize the risk of losing a ton of remain supporters by doing that because essentially you'd split you'd then split the party again if you had their kind of the vision that they've set out you'd split the party again with well we're going to be campaigning for our labor deal um 
I just it's it's difficult to see where they're going to take this and actually how quickly they're going to move towards a second referendum or is it just going to be something that they repeat over and over again until conference by which time we could be weeks away from no deal if the second referendum does happen um how do you think it should be framed do you think it should be the same kind of like remain versus leave thing which we had in 2016 do you think this is very much a discussion for remainers or do you think it should take on the the kind of um confirmatory ratification referendum like good friday agreement style in my heart i think it has to be good friday agreement style it has to be confirmatory but i also you know i'm biased i'm a remainer whatever you want to call me um, but I do think there has to be an option to reject Brexit outright. There has to be an option to say remain because the only other option would be, well, you have this deal or you have no deal. And even regardless of that, I think this goes back to the Labour position and why it's so problematic to still be pro-Brexit is because the European Union have said that they aren't going to be making major changes to the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May uh that Theresa May agreed to and so even with a even if you had a Labour government saying that they wanted to put this their Labour deal to a referendum they would effectively still be selling a Theresa May deal perhaps with a few little added extras maybe on workers rights and environmental standards but it's still a hard Brexit and it's still evolved out of a Tory Brexit and I think that's a big issue as well that they're going to have to face up to at some point. What qu- question do you think the oh, referendum yeah, sorry. should be asking? <laughs> I went off on a bit of a tangent there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think it has to ask, I mean, again, it depends if it's no deal or a deal. And I think at this point we're looking at, oh, it's so difficult. It depends on the circumstances. If we're heading for no deal and it's a referendum between no deal and for example revoking article 50 that would be the question but then at that point i don't think we would have a referendum because i think parliament wouldn't allow no deal to happen and so article 50 or another extension would be maneuvered somehow by parliament because you can't you just can't have no deal on the ballot paper you just can't. It would be ridiculous. <laughs> it would be ridiculous. However, I still think that whatever the Brexit outcome is, it has to be put to a referendum at this point anyway, for the same reasons that the Good Friday Agreement was, which is you cannot have something so big decided on by a small group of people Um which is going to affect so many lives without knowing that you do have consent for that particular deal. Um, and so I think even if Labour does push for a soft Brexit or or leads on that in Parliament and is successful, I think there still has to be some kind of confirmatory vote. My concern would be making sure that in pursuing a second referendum, we aren't closing our minds to... Uh, backing something like a Norway Plus if the opportunity arrived. It might not. It looks less likely now than it did before. Um, But I think, yeah, I think that's where I am. My only concern, in fact, 
my biggest concern about a second referendum still is how we win it and then what does that mean if we don't i i agree i mean and the problem is is much like the last referendum unless the unless labor and by that i mean the leadership included campaigns for uh whatever the non-Brexit side is, whether that's a softer Brexit or remain, um, unless the Labour leadership wholeheartedly campaigns for that, I worry that we would lose it again. Um, because, you know, I was a I was a massive Corbyn fan um, and my first, I guess I call it red flag, ironically, um, was, was during the referendum um, when... I saw Jeremy Corbyn, who was kind of a bit of an idol of mine, and uh, and he he didn't seem to have his heart in it, and I completely understand why, because he's from the same generation that my granddad was of left wing uh, political figures in the Labour Party who did not like the European Union, um, and desired a Brexit. And so I understand why, but I think in the case of, you know, a Tory deal or a no deal being put to a referendum, unless the leadership, the shadow cabinet, um, and, you know, including members of the shadow cabinet who have been quite pro-Brexit up until now, unless they make the left-wing case against Brexit properly and wholeheartedly, I think I think we have a, a, a reasonable chance of losing again. Because you, there has to be some kind of progressive and inspiring alternative for people. One that combats people like Nigel Farage's narrative. Um, and if that's absent, uh, then we don't offer a, voters an alternative vision for the country. An additional concern should be what happens if Remain do win. Um and politicians like Lisa Nandy do genuinely seem quite pensive about the result, um, which is which is why even though I, I even though I disagree with the idea of like No Deal being on the ballot, for example, I still find myself respecting um, how she thinks and what she's saying. Yeah. Um, we were talking about this earlier um, in the podcast, but I, I I just feel like even if Remain wins and hooray, we remain in the European Union, you know that, that, that that's that's wonderful. Um, what happens to all the people who voted leave in 2016 and still voted leave in this hypothetical second referendum um they are not going to go down quietly um it is highly likely they're going to be perhaps disillusioned for forever um with the political system um how does a second referendum solve that issue i know a lot of people who would be very disillusioned if brexit didn't happen but i think you know, this is something we've been speaking a lot about in Young Labour for a final say. How do we reconcile such a divided country? And if Brexit doesn't happen, you know, how do we still keep people involved in the democratic process and not just feel like they've been stitched up as the narrative from Farage is already painting out if Brexit doesn't happen? Um, and I think there has to be complete fundamental change to our systems in the UK I think the the I don't like pandering to uh far-right narratives on things like immigration but I think there's certain messaging that was used by the leave campaign which spoke to a very legitimate 
um, anger and disillusionment amongst voters. And I'd say one of the key things is democracy. We can sit and argue all we like about how actually the EU is democratic when it comes to X, Y, Z. Oh, we actually do elect our MEPs, as has been evidenced last week. Um, but actually, people... It's, it's not illegitimate for people to feel like they aren't involved in democracy, that their politicians aren't accountable enough, that they don't have any connection to the European Union. And so I think there's a certain number of upheavals that have to happen, whether or not Brexit happens. And that includes things like getting rid of the House of Lords. Um, and I know a lot of Leave voters who that would be a very, and, and Remain voters, that would be a very um, uh, important policy for them, um, is changing our voting system, uh, basically just strengthening democracy, um, finding ways of making people feel like they're more clued up about the European Union. Um, most people leave school these days um, not knowing how Parliament, the basic functions of Parliament or of government or of the European Union um, or even of lo their local councils. Um, and I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people would feel like they're not particularly involved in the democratic process. You know, we vote once every five years. Um, an awful lot of people don't vote in local elections. A lot of my friends didn't know they were happening. Um, and then there's other things as well, like the communities which have been, you know, quote, left behind. Um, it's about like the makeup of the infrastructure of the United Kingdom how do we you know create a transport system for example which makes the uk feel a lot more connected to each other um why why does london for example there's a lot of you know anti-london anger that came out of the leave campaign the idea of metropolitan elites they're talking really about londoners when they say metropolitan elites they don't mean people from cities like newcastle and leeds um, or Bristol, or, you know, I don't know, even Canterbury. They're not talking about those, they're talking about London. And I think, again, that anger is legitimate. London has an awful lot of things which the the rest of the UK doesn't have. So one of the things, for example, that I would do is I would take Transport for London and I would replicate it elsewhere. You can set up, you know, Transport for the Southwest, Transport for the Northeast, a similarly... A public owned company or public run system uh, where you know either old transport links are resurrected um, like old rail lines are resurrected or new ones are built um, and you have some kind of oyster card system in that region or travel card system uh, that people can use and then also you have education you have uh, work work opportunities in those areas um you can understand why a place like wigan um lisa landy's constituency voted to leave and wants to leave um because there just aren't the the there isn't the upward social mobility there leaving the eu is going to have a severe impact on a lot of jobs particularly working class jobs in manufacturing and such um but even if we do Brexit, there has to be some kind of way of bringing 
those jobs back and I would say that would be something something like incentives for local entrepreneurship local business and trying to look at resurrecting the kind of community economic ecosystems which perhaps used to exist in parts of the UK on a small scale um where there were local local jobs for local people um and uh and you have a kind of different hubs parts of your town your city where there are there are local jobs and you don't have to rely necessarily on um international companies or you don't have to rely on big corporations in london relocating elsewhere where you it would be nice to have factory manufacturing and engineering jobs um but in addition to those you have to have a more diverse range of uh work you have to have the education training systems to back that up that includes even just the NHS, which obviously already exists, you have to have the education training systems to back up um, creating a workforce that can fill the positions in that sector. Um, so I'd say there's there's loads of things that we can do that will at least help heal the divisions. And it will take time if we win or lose a referendum to reconcile either side. But I think what you'll see is people will begin to care less about this single issue of Brexit if the reasons that they voted for Brexit in their daily lives and in their communities are improved, are healed, where if they're angry about the fact that their community has effectively been left to rot since the 1980s, if they have a government which is bringing jobs and livelihoods and essentially happiness back to those parts of the UK they I think people will begin to forget. I think what you said there which is really interesting is about um sort of addressing the sort of I guess the the slogan that that is so famous now take back control right and it's about taking back control of people taking back control of their own lives and it's why I'm so interested in all the stuff surrounding things like um, the Preston model and employee ownership and workplace democracy. And I think really getting in to the everyday experiences and de- dem- uh, democratising um, the, the the lives of people in a way that is going to be transformative. Because I, I, I think you're right. I think the driver of that Brexit vote was not to do with the constitutional uh the the precise constitutional arrangements of britain's relationship with the european union i think fundamentally it was about an alienation and and i think the way we go somewhere to addressing that is through taking things local and thinking about democracy and thinking about um adding a bit more uh, solidarity to people's lives a bit more community to people's lives a bit more um of a a feeling of solidity my fear at the moment is that we're in the midst of a culture war and the general uh approach of lots of people seems to be to escalate the culture war and make it 
um, more pronounced and more more extreme and what I think needs to happen is we need to be calming it down and we need to be talking about left-right issues, not just remain-leave issues. Yeah, um, I completely agree. Because things are being polarised um, along that sort of remain-leave axis as opposed to that left-right axis. And I think there are some dangers in that at the moment. The official vote-leave campaign and what they tapped into when it came to sovereignty democracy and control that's something that progressive solutions can be offered to address if labor if labor and other parties can offer a more progressive narrative there are people who are concerned about immigration who can be won back over into the camp of it's actually not immigration it is austerity it is lack of job creation um, I think that's a really crucial distinction that you've just made there as well. It's not about pandering to those by by just by uh, dictating our immigration policy based on trying to satisfy needs that we don't think are um, going to be the best for this country. It's about thinking about what offer we can give them beyond immigration. Exactly. It's not about yeah, I think that's a really good distinction. Yeah, because by by saying, oh, we're listening to people's concerns and effectively pandering to the Farage, Aaron Banks-led narrative on immigration, first of all, we're pandering to a core cool group of voters who will never vote for us anyway, and we're not doing any favours to those voters who were in the immigration camp who we are simply reinforcing a narrative which does not help them, which will not deliver policies which improves, which improve their lives. Um, specifically, I mean policies on immigration. If we can, if we can instead change the narrative, if we're the ones to lead the voters that we can win over, um, to to our side to say look this is actually what needs fixing and and again immigration comes from the same feeling of feeling like you do not have control over your own life feeling like there is some external factor which is hampering your ability to do things which is the reason your community is changing when it's not it it is simply other reasons and Mr Farage or whoever Tommy Robinson has come along and said it's immigrants and and it and the immigrant narrative isn't legitimate but certainly the feeling of not having control is and it's and by the way that, yeah. I don't think that feeling of lack of control is exclusive to leave voters I think no. there's a good huge chunk of the remain um the remain vote that in, in different ways perhaps but still uh, in in very real ways don't feel they have control over their lives and feel alienated um, so I think it, it's a message that that does transcend that leave remain access I completely agree yeah because there are there are like you say there are remain voters who don't feel like they have that control it's just that they didn't think that leaving the European Union was the answer to those problems or they weren't convinced enough to vote leave i mean i nearly voted leave i toyed i toyed with the idea for a bit i've certainly felt growing up there are there is a lot that i don't have control over you know i grew up probably at a similar time to you where my local hospital was being shut down 
and this was by a Labour government, um, mm. where public services were being cut. And then suddenly the Tory government come along, those things start being taken away. It's like, what's happening to my family? What's happening to my community? Why are there, why, why is my high street essentially dying? Um, why are all these fancy flats being built and left empty? Why is there no housing that's affordable? Why will I never be able to own a home probably? Um, you know, th there's a lot of reasons why Remain voters, like you say, would feel the exact same. But it's just that we don't think that leaving the European Union is the right way to address those problems. And Labour needs to come out and say, leaving the European Union is not the right way to address these problems. And here's what we are going to do to make your lives better. Um, Tessa, yeah. welcome to the social review. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Here at the Social Review, we don't just talk politics, you know, we like to kick back, relax, and um, watch some Detective Pikachu. Am I right? Or am I right? <laughs> you, are, you are roughly correct. <laughs> I think, yeah. It, it, just, in fact, I think it's just me and Joe that yeah. have seen it. It is, so it is. That, that diagnosis. I, I was 50% correct in my diagnosis. Um, yeah, true. I have not seen Detective Pikachu. I'm guessing he's a Pikachu and he's a detective. I mean, that's from someone who's he's never so engaged with Pokemon that, ever. There's so much more to it than that. <laughs> and he's Deadpool. Don't forget he's Deadpool. Uh, you're not selling it, I have to say. <laughs> what 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 applicability does Detective Pikachu have to the social review movement? I, I, I mean, I can only come back to that one scene that I did mention uh, in the pre-chat of this podcast which is there's this one moment where this journalist is talking about how difficult it is to rally against functions of power while the same functions of power are uh, the things that are required to report on them. It's like, there's a, there, I'm going to embarrass myself here. There's a Russia Today video, which is, um, what's his name? It's not Gramsci. It's the one that's like Gramsci, but worse. Uh, You're on who's your the American? Russia Today. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, who's the who's the? Um, oh my god, um, who's the American literary critic? Chomsky. Very famous, Chomsky. Yeah, exactly. Like Gramsci, but worse. I was basically correct. That's that's <laughs> um, that's like god tier. But continue. Yeah. Continue. Chomsky does a video where he basically makes the same argument that Detective Pikachu makes in this ten-second clip, but he spends about ten minutes doing it. So don't read Chomsky play pokemon gold and silver that's my argument that's my argument as far as I'm <laughs> it's concerned. good advice yeah and definitely don't watch russia today <laughs> <laughs> eugenie what have you been watching and reading recently there isn't detective pikachu haha <laughs> um i went to see uh claire denis new film this week high life which is robert panson and julia oh Lewis yes space um yeah yes it's, it was a good uh... I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it it's, uh, I would say, potentially the single most different film possible ever made to Detective Pikachu, bar like, I don't know, like mm. 120 Days in Solemn or something. But um, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a joke there for all you Marquis de Sade fans. Um, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good film. Um, very, very bleak, um, heavy on um, sexual violence, uh, dealing with what it means to have a child, yeah. uh, uh, potentially about being against the carceral state, um, all in space, um, 
again most of it i can't describe on this podcast if we're trying to keep our pg rating but um yeah, it's certainly uh, certainly very different to Detective Pikachu. Um, it doesn't sound so different to Detective Pikachu. <laughs> is Robert Pattinson any good in it? Because obviously he's going to be Batman now. Oh, I mean, Robert Pattinson is a great actor. And um, this is not just coming from someone who I'm sure if he went on the way back with Machine would find all of the uh, uh, deeply, deeply pained Tumblr posts I wrote about him in 2012. But, um, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, no. Um, but uh, no, he's great. Uh, the best thing is, is that he does these big franchises to make loads of money so he can make weird films about, um, you know, the carceral state and being sexually assaulted in space. So, you know, there's um, there's a uh, I, I think he would be great as Batman. And um, yeah, don't don't listen to the haters. I don't know. That would be my uh, uh, you're in good hands, I think. So enough about me talking about Claire Denis. Jasper, have you got any uh, anything you've been reading or watching recently? Thank you for asking, Eugenie. Um, I have been watching Years and Years on BBC One, written by Russell mm. Davies. Um, Joe, I know you have as well. Um, it's quite good. Yeah. Um, it's a bit dodgy in spots. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I've watched, uh, I, I watched Doctor Who from the first episode, Rose, way back in two thousand five. That led me to Russell T Davies. I do love Russell T Davies. Um, he does. He has always had a penchant for sensationalism in his writing, which is definitely there in years and years. Um, Joe, didn't you tweet that it's like a Guardian reader's worst nightmare, um, writ I, large? I think it, I've been <laughs> describing it to friends as a um, as if a, if the Guardian wrote an episode of Doctor Who and the Doctor didn't turn up, <laughs> which makes it sound much worse than it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I would agree with that assessment. It it is genuinely very well made. Um, my 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 only my only problem, more so with the first episode, was the scene where years and years spoilers, by the way, uh, is, is where the girl comes out as trans, and then it turns out oh, she means yeah. transhuman. Yes, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, Beth that Desmond, was a bait and switch was sus. Yes. Yeah. Beth Desmond, one of our other writers, was tweeting about this as well. Um, and it just it just seemed very odd to conflate transgender issues with far right populism as if it's all part of like the same kind of big weird social change. I mean, like obviously the rise of like the transgender discourse and that kind of thing is a big social change, and it's occurred on the same at the same time as far right populism. But in my mind, that doesn't necessarily mean the two can be equated. There isn't really anything that links to beyond just circumstance of time and the fact that they're not like the way things have been done in mainstream discourse before. I don't know. It just really didn't sit right with me and felt odd that Russell T Davies would would go for something like that. I basically agree. I wasn't particularly comfortable with that part of the uh, yeah the story. Yeah, it was. It wasn't very tasteful. And then, like any any commentary. Uh, ill-deserved or deserved of you know the transgender movement and the acceptance of people being trans in this country uh, it has to be analyzed within this the has to be analyzed within the context of gender and when you kind of when you divorce it of the material circumstances to make a joke that haha you thought that this angsty teen was trans. How dare you? It, it, it just completely comes off wrong. And then it makes the 
completely valid argument that it then tries to make with about transhumanism and about the blend of technology and humanity. Now it's tied this into this social constructivism and it doesn't really make sense. Like it's a cheap laugh and it doesn't help the cause of either argument. And I, th I think you're very close there to getting into the uh, uh, having not seen it, but certainly from what you, you guys are saying, it sounds like, you know, getting close to that realm of, um, oh, well, I'm going to identify as a cat you know it's just like this is like not you know when people you know when you get yes. the, the kind of people always doing that mainly idiots on twitter but you know and it's just like really corrosive to the kind of um to the to, to um to in general the kind of public discourse around around trans people and uh yeah very hurtful I, I'm, I'm very um disappointed in that because i i i think russell t davis actually did a huge amount to kind of bring lgb kind of relationships into uh into kind of mainstream children's tv basically you know um speaking as a as someone who was uh uh who is um who is queer and uh used to watch doctor who and see a kind of litany of uh of um of you know his you know captain jack hartness and all that stuff when i was a kid and how how important and how much i like that it's uh it's sad that he doesn't seem to be able to extend any kind of empathy towards the the t end of the spectrum on his latest show so earlier on twitter we asked for your questions for us at the social review because we are dry and need lots of content to fill the podcast um <laughs> we had a very good question from calamo dwyer who was a scottish labor candidate for the european parliament and is a very lovely man thank you calamo dwyer um he asked us what are the main blind spots for britain's left and center left what do we think uh, well, I guess the range of um, isms that they're uh, prone to dabbling in. So uh, we can think about uh, kind of anti-Semitism for the far, well, in general, and transphobia for the centre-left seems to be the kind of du jour. Um, yeah. Uh, let me fit the right. Blind spot, yeah, as Callum said. But um, yeah, certainly um, it seems to me that those seem to be, and, you know, and these kind of increasing dalliances with this kind of slightly bizarre um, kind of Islamophobic, um yeah uh you know yeah. also when you know when the center left is dealing with the kind of quote unquote anti-semitism of the hard left you know it's just a whole circular firing squad of uh almost blow rpg rating that um bad <laughs> behavior i agree with everything that was just said there i think for the center left for me um in terms of blind spots it's 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 an almost uh a, a lack of imagination as well i think there's sort of a a um they're very it's very easy to for the center left to put forward their case of what they're against i'm very clear on what they're against uh, brexit trump um corbyn um i think it's very <laughs> rare that they put forward what they're for and and i can't believe that we're so far into corbyn's leadership and i'm still saying that about the center left i think i think there's no positive um vision there still um i i i i don't know where that's coming from still um i obviously tom watson's got his new social democratic grouping i'm still skeptical about that to be honest but but maybe something will come of that but there's there seems to be no positive platform still it's still anti this anti this anti this and i'm anti brexit and i'm anti trump but but there needs to be something to 
hang your hat on too. There needs to be some sort of positive vision. I think what you're saying is they need to read Utopia for Realists. <laughs> they need to read some Bregman. That's all they need to do. That's what I'm always saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I need to read the social review. That's literally all it is. Just like read, of yeah, re- write for the social review, read some Bregman. Just like remember that all these things that we take for granted now as the same institutions that they're so afraid of losing, they required optimism. They required a bit of, a bit of hope and a bit of, you know, a bit of personality politics to do it. Get out, make these cases. Ivor Lewis also asked us, is there room for an alternative left that open labour and now momentum seem to be attempting to build? Um, as someone who doesn't really follow labour factional infighting, sorry, not sorry, um, is there? Yes, there damn well is. And this is something that I've promoted for like quite a while. I remember during the last NEC elections, or it might have been the NCC, I don't remember, these acronyms are basically interchangeable to me now. There... The open labor lot put forward Steve, uh, Stephen Lapsley and Momentum. Obviously, this was the first time that they'd come away from the CLGA. I don't remember what that stands for either. Good, I have a lot of acronyms in my head. Uh, they, the Momentum walked away from the CLGA to put forward their own, own list because they didn't want to advocate for, I think it's Glenn Secker, the head of JVL. They didn't want to advocate him for a position in the NCC, so they put forward their own list. Uh, I, on my own prerogative, said, right, here's my list. I did it with like nice fancy graphic and whatnot. And I put down the Momentum, Original Slate, and Steve Lapsley. So I think there is definitely a desire within Open Labour to do this. And I think it would be hugely beneficial because I think we're all roughly Open Labour aligned. Uh, open Labour, they call it like the Open Left or something. I don't know. I think you could just call us a bit wet. I think it covers the same... Uh... <laughs> You can, but, you know, you don't win friends with wet laborism. <laughs> <laughs> One final question, which several people seem to want to ask us. Um, who funds the social review? Um, well, there's an easy answer to that question. It's... Gosh, I sound so much better than I just did on an external microphone that actually works. You know, funny that. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Social Review podcast. If you liked what you heard, then please do let us know. Tweet us. We're at the Social Review on Twitter. Um, If you've got an article which you'd like to write for us, pitch it to us. uh, Message us on Twitter. um, Drop us an email at editors at the socialreview.co.uk. And if you'd like to hear more of the podcast, then do do stick around. We've got some fantastic guests, some fantastic content coming up over the next couple of weeks. Thank you very much to Joe, William, and Eugenie uh, for co-hosting with me. Thank you very much to Tessa, at Tess Millsy on Twitter, um, for talking to us. The music used in this podcast is uh, Sweeter of a Mouth, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, composed by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks very much for listening, and you'll hear us again uh, very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.